0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good morning or evening or afternoon, wherever you are. It's lunchtime on the West Coast, uh, November the 25th. Seems like we're in the the post-Trump age, two or three days in. We're getting back to normal, going back to normal preoccupations and news stories. Um, and we're back, of course, to the issue today, at least, of monopoly capitalism. Uh, it was announced a couple of hours ago that Bertelsmann have won the battle to, to, to acquire Simon & Schuster, one of the, uh, the other large publishers. And this issue brings to mind the whole question of monopoly capitalism, which we've dealt with on the show numerous times. Tom Hartman, David Dien. Zephyr Teachout, Barry Lynn have all appeared on the show uh, over the last couple of months talking about their books on what they see as 21st century monopoly capitalism. So is the book industry falling under the same monopoly capitalist grip as, as, as technology and, and big pharma and big chemicals and big agriculture and all the rest of these big industrial sectors? One guy who's very well-equipped to talk about these issues is my guest today, uh, Peter Osnos. He is the founder of Public Affairs, one of the large, independent, and high-quality publishers. uh, Still not acquired by Bertelsmann. It's currently owned by Hachette. Uh, Peter, are you worried with this news today that uh, Bertelsmann is acquiring Simon & Schuster? Is it one more One more block of the wall that's falling so that we finally end up with the Googleization or Amazonization of the publishing industry?
1: Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I I don't actually feel that at all. I I think what I'd like to say is that the first book in print, Gutenberg's Bible, uh, was followed by the second book in print, which was Publishing is Dead. Uh, And that was 500 years ago. We have a terrible habit of invoking um, the worst possible consequences of everything in publishing. Um, You know, as you know, and you saw, I've just, you know, in my peregrinations uh, have planning a small new publishing enterprise, which I can explain, called platform books. And if you put Bertelsmann, PRHSS, as it's now going to be called, on one end of the spectrum, Platform books is the other, and it's it's a mistake to assume that at the at the smaller independent end of publishing, it's it's languishing. In fact, one of the reasons why there is a consolidation among the big guys is because there's so much activity on things like self-publishing and smaller independents that are just you know locally based. What we're seeing in publishing, uh, you know, we've been through one crisis after another in the last you know forever. But in particular, all the digital stuff came along and people said, well, that's it. You know, Publishing is not gonna survive. Who the hell needs publishers? And the answer is it turns out that people want print books. 70% of the books that are being sold are in print now, 20% are digital and 10% are audio. So what you now have, plus all of these very small self-publishing enterprises and smaller independent publishers like Grey Wolf there's a you know, there's a round, a range of things. What this means, and there's no question about it, that Bertelsman, uh, Random House, Penguin, Simon and Schuster, and so forth is a major, 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 major factor in major publishing. But major publishing is 40, 50, 60 percent of the business, maybe 70 even. But there's still a significant percentage of the business which is not. And I um, have come to believe that the reality, look, when I joined Random House in 1984, Random House and Simon and & Schuster were the two great pillars of publishing. They were the two biggest uh, you know, contentious publishers. Well, there's two kinds of publishers. It's the Wasp publishing, Houghton Mifflin and so forth, and the Jewish publishing, which was Random House and Simon and & Schuster. And they were huge. And now you have the situation in which a German publisher Owns Random House, a German publisher. Owns Penguin, Pu- Putnam, Viking, all those imprints, and a German publisher now owns uh, owns the about to own Simon and Schuster. And
0: you, uh, and you at Public Affairs, Peter, are owned by a, a French holding company. French company. That Not mean, everyone, what? though, Peter, to be fair, would agree with you. Go on Twitter today. This is probably no great surprise. Everyone is bemoaning this latest no. acquisition. One, uh, one tweet suggests that we have more corp- por- corporate control of media. Another uh, presents this as the big fish eating little fish and getting even bigger. And of course, we have other corporates like uh, Robert Thompson, the CEO of News Corp. Claiming that this will raise a serious antitrust issue. Surprise, surprise, given that News Corps was also in the bidding for. Do you see much antitrust activity around this? I don't think
1: you'll have antitrust activity of consequence in this country, but I think it may very well have it in Europe. Remember, Bertelsmann is a European company and its influence in Europe is vast. And what I think you may see is that the same European regulators who sometimes step in as they have recently with Amazon and years ago, the most famous case that I'm aware of was when GE tried to buy Honeywell, thought it was going to get it, and then the European regulators said said no. What I suspect will happen, there will be some shaking out a bit in which perhaps the Random House may need to unload you know random house spain or random house italy they may have to sort of sort of focus a bit more on their acquisition one of the things about simon and schuster was it was not a significant international player it had a uk uh, company but it wasn't major one other thing i want to say about this t- transaction uh, simon and schuster was part of of uh, whatever it's called uh you know what i mean uh, cbs viacom CBS Viacom was an entertainment company in which Simon & Schuster was a a rounding error and barely was ever mentioned in quarterly reports. They were much more interested in movies and television and so forth. Now they're going to be owned by a book company, a company that is focused almost exclusively, certainly primarily on books. It's a privately held company, so it's not subject to -to day-to-day Of the uh, finance and uh, assessment, so it may, if they leave Simon and Schuster, in the hands of the two people who they have announced will be in charge, both of whom I know very well, John Carp and Dennis Uel. They're really terrific book people. Uh, Both of them at one time worked with me, Uh, and were very junior, and now they run this huge company, and I I think that the assumption that everything is going to go wrong is a function of the entire mood and morale of the certainly our world because we've been through such you know hell for the last four years and uh, let's give it a chance uh if there are issues of antitrust we'll see how they play out i i think the major question is will simon and schuster be able to be Simon and Schuster. I suspect that for a long time it will stay in the, same business, in the same building it is, there's no room in the Random House building. I think that it will have the same leadership and probably the same literary, you know, uh, popular book profile. I don't. It would have been much more contentious if Harper Collins had succeeded in buying it, because there are a lot of Simon and Schuster authors who would not allow themselves to be published by any company that has anything to do with Rupert Murdoch, Stephen King, to, to begin with. So I think you, you know, you you're in a situation here in which it's natural, understandable, predictable that people will want to look at the downside, and it turns out there may not be quite the downside they think. That's my, you know, slightly contrarian view.
0: Peter. Um, um you've made your name as a contrarian both as a person as a publisher at public affairs you've, you've published some of the most contrarian interesting controversial uh, and brilliant books of 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 the last 20 or 30 years perhaps more um many people will be mystified with what it's like to be a publisher uh inside a large corporation uh when you ran public affairs, you're the founder, but you're no longer involved in the day-to-day operation of public affairs. Um, Did the phone sometimes ring and some very senior person in Paris or London or Frankfurt or New York tell you what to do?
1: No. And the reason is, Andrew, that the way the company was designed and run, I was not owned, I was a partner of Perseus, the holding company which had other imprints like basic books um, and, and several other very you know, established imprints. And since I was, my investors and I really were very substantial owners of the company. And I don't know. you Companies' jobs, are, I think, are 10% given and 90% taken. When I started public affairs, I knew what I had in mind as a kind of company I wanted to do. And because I was able to be a significant financial partner to the people providing us the infrastructure, the sales and the, and the finance and so forth, I was really able to do it the way I wanted to. And then when we did things that were unusual, because we were small as a, in relative size, people didn't quite notice. For example, now there's a lot of emphasis on direct-to-consumer sales, meaning publishers being able to sell directly to the consumer uh, if, if they find it's difficult to get the book in some other place. Now that you know that's a very big and as, as yet really not understood development. Well, we started doing that a very long time ago when I realized that most of our books good as they were, because of the nature of the kind of publishing we did and the kind of the sizes of our imp- of our printings, sometimes it was hard to find a book. So we took an ad in the New York Review of Books three or four times saying how to buy a public affairs book, ask for it. And if they won't tell you where it is, get in touch with us and we'll send Peter st- we'll still on it. the
0: um, on the public affairs uh, website, I was looking this morning and a note from the founder, which is of course you you say, three people in particular inspired uh, the, the House and the kind of books you publish. Uh, Izzy Stone, Benjamin Bradley, former uh, leader of the, the, the Washington Post, and Robert Bernstein, the chief executive of Random House. Um, is there a book in particular that you published that captured the spirit of these three men and somehow well, summarized think... everything you were trying to do at, uh, at uh, well, Public well... Affairs?
1: One book is like choosing among your child. I I, I wouldn't say. not well, two, then.
0: Specific, You've got two children, so you don't have to leave either out.
1: Well, I, I give you a bunch of books. The first book we did, the very, very first book we did um, after the Star Report, which we did as an instant book, which led to a wonderful headline in The, in the New York Times about steamy debut for serious publisher. We did that as an instant book. But the story of the kind of thing we did. So we had under contract a book uh, called Banker to the Poor by Muhammad Yunus, the founder of microlending and the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. And it was a book under contract and we were going to publish it. And it turns out that George Stephanopoulos was writing a book for Little Brown on his experiences in Washington as the Uh, working for Bill Clinton, and somebody told him to call me. He said, this guy Osnos knows what he's doing when it comes to political books. And he said, would you be my advisor? You're not going to be my publisher. You a $2 million advance. You're not going to be my publisher, but would you kind of, you know, look over my shoulder? And I said, sure, but I do this for a living. So here's what I'd like you to pay me. I want you to pay the advance on one of our books. And the book he chose was Muhammad Yunus's Banker to the Poor. $30,000 $30,000 advance, first check we got was $15,000, I've framed it, and that's how we published. book turned out to be a bestseller. My point is that sometimes if you're small and if you're not running scared, you can do things that other people might, might not want to do. Uh, there were several cases of books where they were unloaded, another one of our early books, Blind Man's Bluff, was originally under contract to Simon and Schuster, and the authors missed the deadline. The book was canceled. It was offered to us for twenty-five thousand dollars. We took it. We published it, it was about the U.S.-Soviet submarine conflicts of the Cold War. Sold four hundred thousand copies. Um, and why? Because it turns out that there were a very substantial number of people. Submariners and others who were interested in the story, and we got that. So a twenty-five thousand dollar advance led to four hundred thousand in sales. And I don't want to make it sound like every book was a triumph, because that's certainly not the case.
0: Uh, 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 Peter, I'm uh, I'm delighted that you didn't mention Art of the Deal as one of your favorite books.
1: That was not a. T- that was not. That was random.
0: House. Oh, but you were there. Oh, so uh, and you I have heard- a great story about how you successfully sold to Trump. But we're in the post-Trump age, Peter. So, I don't think we need to talk any more about. Well, if
1: you want to read about it, I listen. You can read about it in my forthcoming memoir, or you can read about it on the New Yorker website called Editing. Donald and speaking Trump, of and your and forthcoming
0: uh, memoir, Peter, uh, that's a perfect segue to your next venture, uh, platform publishing. Um, which you will be starting in the new year. It's, it's a publishing startup, uh, a, a, a post-public affairs um, project for you. What is Platform all about?
1: Platform Books, LLC. Well, what, what it is is that I have been working on a memoir uh, for the last few years. Especially
0: uh, and especially Good View. Good,
1: yes. Watching history happen. And when I was done with the manuscript, and I had two of my favorite longtime colleague editors, now freelancing, edit the book. I had to decide how I would publish it. And after I showed it to one agent, and her comments led me to believe that I could not bear, literally, beyond the point where I could just send it out and have an auction if there was going to be one, or get rejections. It's my life story. I didn't want to have rejections. So I decided instead to create a publishing company, which, we did. It's called Platform Books, LLC, and we turned it into a company. We have a formal legal agreement to try. My wife and I are the co-proprietors of, of this modest venture. Um, and then as that process you know, evolved, I realized that we were doing something that was probably a new approach to how books can be published, which I call gig publishing, which is to say, if you think about movies or you think about plays, What happens is that people get together as a team for individual projects rather than having a permanent staff of people who are doing everything. And what we did with this book, my book, is we put together a really top-notch team of people, all of whom are freelancing now for one reason or another, and they are the people responsible for this book. Now, that's not true of the salespeople, I should say. The salespeople are part of Ingram, which is the country's largest book distributor. And those people used to be my colleagues at Perseus before they were acquired by Ingram. So we have excellent editors, top notch publicists, very good designer, and good sales and the good sales potential. And so what it is is a it's a new approach in the modern world to how you publish books. Meaning if somebody has an idea, has a book, has a concept, and most of them, and very importantly always can get the financing because we have to figure out how to finance each of these books and in the case of my book i'm financing my wife and i are financing it
0: so this this is is a a self-published book is that fair no
1: it's not that's specifically what it is not it's a publishing company publishing a book it happens to be a company that i've started
0: briefly talk about this book that you're working on peter that you're you're building that the new platform around and especially good view it's it's a it's the story of your life you just mentioned earlier that the story of your life was getting rejection notes but that's not really No, no no
1: no 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 that's not true that is not true at all i didn't say that if i did if i did cancel it no no i didn't get rejection notes what i didn't want to happen with my memoir was to be to do something traditional i think the answer is andrew it turns out and i wouldn't have predicted this necessarily at the beginning that I am one of those people who, who likes to do things my way rather than it's my view is you if you what's done what you don't do for yourself will be done to you. Which is why I left The Washington Post after 18 years when I realized I was not going to learn as much going forward. It's why after Random House when I done two Trump books and they wanted a third, I left to start public affairs and now I realize that my public affairs is left the nest it's an established company, it doesn't need me anymore, by any means. And so now I'm doing what in in conventional terms is called repositioning or encore. Uh, I'm a grandfather.
0: And in in Silicon Valley, that's called pivoting.
1: Well, yeah, it's another way of approach. I say there's no such thing as retirement for people like us, we reposition. So what I'm doing now in this concept of a gig publisher is trying this concept out with my own book, because that's not going to cost anybody any else, no one else any money to do it. If it works, I've already got a couple of really terrific projects that could follow on this one. I have no interest at this point in becoming another, you know, being a publisher again on the scale that was at public affairs. I've done it, it's over. But what I do like to do is think stuff up. Um, and one of the projects that I did was called Caravan uh, in 2005-6. Got funded by the MacArthur and Carnegie foundations, and what we did was provide the way in which smaller and independent university publishers could figure out how to do eBooks. We started in 2006, and then, of course, in 2007 came the Kindle. Suddenly, it became relevant, and I always think that you know, if 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 the issue for you is not to get rich which i can assure you has not been the case with me certainly comfortable but not rich then you can really do a lot of stuff you can liberate yourself from the sense that you have to accomplish certain financial goals in order to feel a success and that's what true republic affairs uh, our books are for a very specific audience it's the same audience that would look at lithub I've said from the beginning that our audience are the people who are public radio, New Yorker, you know, PBS, uh, independent publishing, uh, you know, New York Review Books, did I say that? But the point is, we NPR, you know, what is it, 10% of the country? And if you figure that that 10% of the country is your audience and you serve that 10% of the country, 10% of the country is 30 million people. You can run a very good and successful enterprise for 30 million people.
0: And I'm really excited, Peter, about this book, uh, an especially good view. You gave me a, a tantalizing glimpse, the first few pages and a chapter outline. I noted in the chapter outline that one of the chapters is, which I guess is on uh, public affairs is no longer a startup, yet not not yet an antitrust case, which is very relevant right. today
1: right um
0: and and the beginning is uh you have a, a a wonderful anecdote about your son um when he was young uh, uh you're quoting him uh, he was talking uh, you were talking to i guess his friends about uh, uh, uh his baseball exploits and your son uh, evan says uh, dad you remind me of jane goodall And then he goes on, you go to the dinner with your notebook and your tape recorder and you say, isn't it amazing how they show affection for their young? (laughs) Do you think as a publisher, you are a little bit of a Jane Goodall or all your authors, um, maybe not Uh, children, are all your authors uh, monkeys in that sense? No, no. And I, I
1: have to make it very clear that I also say, and maybe not in the thing, I also say it was a great evening and I had a wonderful time and Evan was a reserve outfielder on a team called Hilltop Texaco. This was he um, you know a, a major league ball player he was not. Now the point of the and reason that I use that as the sort of anecdote is because it is it is very much the theme of what turns out to be the story, which is that I have always, whenever I've been a participant, also been an observer. And you know, having been a journalist for all that time and still in many ways a journalist, I've always been an observer, and as uh, Yogi Berra actually famously said, uh, "You can observe a lot by watching." And my especially baseball. That's true. And my book really is my experiences, some of which are, as you know, I can say without reservation, fascinating. Four presidents, you know, Obama, Trump, Carter, and Clinton. People like Robert McNamara and George Soros and Vernon Jordan. People who are fascinating. And I was able to work with all of them, not as an employee, but in a sense as a partner, because I was their publisher. And I that's what I'm really telling the story. In addition to the story, of course, of of, of my family, which is a whole other
0: side. And of the that story. will certainly come up in the book and we'll get you back on the show to talk about your book. Now you mentioned you that your son uh, Evan you never you turned out to be a, a professional uh, baseball player. No. But he has grown up to be one of America's most distinguished writers and journalist. He has a new book out, which has been extremely well-received, the first serious biography of Joe Biden. Uh, I, I'm sure you will tell me that it's a wonderful book. Do you see Biden, uh, and, and I know that you published Obama's first books, do you see Obama, Biden as being um, anything beyond Biden, anything beyond Obama? Is he going to be different in any way?
1: Well, I'll tell you what, uh, as I said to you when the first time we spoke recently, you were not born in Brooklyn. So, uh, and one of the things that I have uh, observed in this process is how different the reaction to Evan's book is around the world than it is in this country. Around the world, the book is being embraced because it tells you who Joe Biden is. It's an effort to explain the man who's about to be the president of the United States. In this country, while the book is done very well, nicely, certainly, the assumption is we know Joe Biden. You know We don't need to know more about Joe Biden. So let's focus, as is already the case, on every problem he's going to have. It's the squad who doesn't like this person. It's that this one wants him to choose this person. It's that Marco Rubio says his new national security team went to, too good, you know, went to schools that were too good, and therefore they're not really qualified. Everybody is now already problematizing the Biden presidency, whereas around the world, this is an introduction. The book is an introduction to the man who is now the president of the United States. And the other day I have called and said, hey, you know, he said, I just sold the Albanian rights to the, or the Albanian rights were just acquired for this book. So what you have is a distinction between the world, which needs to know more about Biden, and the Americans who come into this post-Trump period saying we already know who the guy is and we're not all that interested and that's a mistake he's going to be the president and if we've learned nothing else in the last four years being the president matters
0: well uh, you promised peter that you would get uh, evan on the show i've asked his publishers as well so if he's watching he needs definitely to come on the show and talk about his new book
1: well he has to he has to take my call first
0: Oh, he has to take your call. Well, uh, Evan, if you're you're watching, take your father's call. Uh, Peter, finally, uh, I don't want you to be choosing between your children here. You mentioned or implied that sometimes you think of books as being like children, but you're stuck, if that's the right word, in your apartment on the Upper West Side in late November 2020, in these strange times, no one's able to go out. One book to read in these weird times, what would it be? Well,
1: right at the moment, and it will not surprise you. I'm one of the 1.8 million people who uh, bought Barack's book, Obama's uh, m- uh, presidential first volume of his presidential memoir. And I I read it in a a Promised way that, Land. Yes, I read it in a way that I suppose it's different from other people. Having been the publisher of Dreams for My Father, the first book that he wrote in 1995, before he was really had any public visibility at all, and it wasn't until 2004 when he spoke at the Democratic Convention that our book was dusted off by the same by the descendant publisher of of where I was at Random House and sold 4 million copies. So I am deeply aware of what Barack is as a writer. And I'm reading this book within that spirit. And I will say on the first 250 pages, the parts I like best are the least formal. Uh, It's what it was like to be Barack as a guy who basically came out of of left field uh, with a funny name. Imagine, he was running for president when we were fighting a war in Iraq, and his middle name was Hussein. And somehow he managed to capture the spirit of the country at the time and became a very successful, by any reasonable standard, two-term president. And what i i'm finding fascinating about the book is what is it that makes this man this particular man capable of that kind of phenomenal achievement and that's why i'm reading the book with such interest
0: you've been listening to keynote hosted by me andrew key make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism make sure and the team at Lit Hub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.